Good morning, I'm Tom. And I'm in great need of 100,000 Al-Anon meetings. And I'm glad to be here. I woke up this morning in Illinois. And uh, I, I just find that to be extraordinary. Uh, and I am glad to be here and to hang out. And, and uh, let me see, I think the schedule today is I'm going to give a couple of talks and I don't know, three or four or five, however many they want. And uh, um, happy to hang out um, and visit. And uh, I, I really, there's a lot I don't know. Um, I remember Blanche saying this, you know, we do, we do stand on the shoulders of giants. We really do. And I, I remember Blanche talking once. She was a very early Al-Anon member in Texas. And she said uh, she now notices, having been an Al-Anon for 20, 30 years, lots of people coming into the program and advancing very quickly. And she said, you know, when we started, we were so slow. And, you know, is it because the newer generation is smarter than we were? Or, and she said, the reason is, is because a lot of people who came before us did a lot of footwork. And they learned a lot of things. And they taught a lot of things. And we have a lot more literature than we had before. Uh, I'm in favor of the literature, by the way. I know that's controversial. But I like the literature. Um, you can have a fight at many meetings about what's your favorite literature, and then you think if you have something that's your favorite, you have to have something that's your least favorite, and then there's fistfights in the parking lot, and it's very, very embarrassing. So we'll try not to do that today. But, but one of the things Blanche said is, you know, we do stand on the shoulders of giants, women and men who came before us, who taught us a lot. We, coming into Al-Anon in the 21st century, did not have to invent the wheel. It had already been invented. I think there's a story told, I think it's in that uh, Lois's biography, When Love is Not Enough. Bill and alcoholic males up there in New York, wherever New York is, are meeting in the house and they're smoking their lungs out and drinking black coffee and laughing their heads off. And Lois is upstairs looking out and it's nighttime. I imagine it's raining, but it might not be. And she sees a dozen cars and in every car there's one person, you know, the wife who drove her alcoholic husbands who are now having a hilarious time downstairs. And Lois, uh, fired by perhaps a little bit of anger, um, walked outside and knocked on the first door and said, are you as mad as I am? <laughs> can, can we talk? You know, can we talk? And so much of recovery comes from the beginning of conversations. I mean, how on earth did Bill W. and Dr. Bob sponsor each other? One talked and the other listened. And then the other talked and the other listened. And they tried stuff and they saw what worked and they saw what didn't work. And, and they start to develop practical methods and, and, and ways of helping people get well. But a huge, part, a, a huge tool for a lot of us is learning how to talk and learning how to listen. Learning how to talk and learning how to listen. I go to uh, meetings where I live. And it's very important for me as an older timer to sometimes just keep my big fat mouth shut and let newer people talk. 
Also, because you don't, you just don't want the two or three people, you know, who were here when Moses was around, to dominate the meeting. Newer people need to find their voice, and it takes a while sometimes to find our voices. But on a regular basis, those of us who are um, longer in the program need to participate at meetings too, because we know some things, like about the traditions that other people might not know. So when I share. Uh, in my home group and a couple of others, you know, three to four minutes, three to four minutes. Um, but the listening and the uh, talking, that's that's crucial. So last night um, I mentioned the fourth or the fifth tradition and... It was read again this morning, and I want to go back to that because I think it's, it's uh, vital to us. Each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, italicized, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. The verbs there, if you're a rather dogmatic English teacher, the gerunds there are very helpful. Um, to help practicing, encouraging, understanding, welcoming, giving comfort. And many of us come in to recovery, um, we might not even know why we're in recovery. They told me to come to six Al-Anon meetings. This is number five. Um, and, and sometimes it just takes a longer time. And the great gift, I do believe, is the gift of desperation. Um, the gift of desperation. When I'm desperate, I'm willing to follow directions. When I'm desperate, I'm willing to ask for help. And sometimes when I'm desperate, I'm willing to follow direction. I don't do that all the time. I heard a, a woman named Phoebe share at a meeting once, and she was talking about the disease of alcoholism. And she said, Alcohol did something for me before it did something to me. Um, and that, that's important to realize. One of the men I've loved uh, is a physician. He's passed now. His name was Dr. Gill, Dr. Gill Ayotte. Gill grew up in French Canada and um, during Prohibition. And when he was a, a boy, Americans needing a drink uh, and a good time would go to Canada. And they would uh, get drunk and have fistfights in parking lots. And uh, Gil would see all this and say, what a great country. I can't wait to get there. And then he went, you know, grew up and went through medical school and came down to San Francisco to begin his medical practice, married in San Francisco. He got sober when General Eisenhower was president and then had a little relapse under Mr. Kennedy and then got sober again under Lyndon Johnson, which I just find a staggeringly shocking thought because <laughs> I used to get drunk whenever Lyndon Johnson spoke. I mean, I just it was just amazing. But people are so different. Anyway, Gil, um, 
Gil gets sober and spends most of his, the rest of his life giving comfort and help to families and getting people on their feet. And he would go around as a medical man talking about the disease. And he would talk to all kinds of groups, and I was, uh, I was so impressed with him. Uh, I was kind of a stage door Johnny, you know. I, I said, Gil, let me drive you, you know, and I, I would go with him. I'd be his, his uh, uh, lackey, and uh, I, therefore I got a chance to hear him talk to a room full of professional people about the disease and the recovery, and Gil could use all the medical terms that medical people like to use. And Gil could also speak the language of the heart, depending on what was needed. Um, we got him to come to speak in Oakland. He was 90, 91, macular degeneration. He couldn't see anymore. He was very deaf in, in one ear. Uh, and we wanted him to come to speak at some meetings in Oakland because our, the meetings were full of young people. And they need to hear some of the giants when the giants are still able to get around. And so we finally got Gil to come in. Um, he had an accent like Maurice Chevalier. You young people can Google Maurice Chevalier and <laughs> see who that was. But he got up in front of the group and he said, uh, I hope I am facing the right way. I cannot see you. I hope I am not shouting. I cannot hear. And then he said, my name is Gil, and I'm a recovering gynecologist. <laughs> and then with this room full of young people, tattooed, all wearing black, extraordinary hair, um, Gil shared from the heart and, and talked about what he was like and what happened and what it's like now. And Gill, in talking, um, you know, he could he he could be as eloquent as Winston Churchill, you know, just a brilliant man. And he he was educated. I like that. He was also smart. I like that. That's not enough. Neither one of those is enough. But I like both of those. And he was also wise. And those are three different things. I've met some very wise people that don't have a lot of education, but boy, there's wisdom there. And I've met some real educated people who are just fools. I know that's not never happens in Illinois, but it sure happens on the West Coast. Anyway, Gil was all three, and he was giving this this presentation on alcoholism, and uh, he was finished. And he any questions? And a lady raised her hand, and she said, "It's really a disease, huh?" Yeah, it's a disease. I mean, it has symptoms. People end up dead. Um, there's progression. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, yes, disease. And if you, you don't want to fight about that, you can just say it's a good metaphor to use, the disease metaphor. Um, she said, well, if someone's showing early signs of alcoholism, can't you sit them down? And say, listen, you're showing early signs of alcoholism. Knock it off. Doesn't you know? Can't you just get them to say no? You know. And um, Gil paused, and he said, "You know, that sounds like such a good idea, but it doesn't work. 
And the reason it doesn't work is because alcoholism is a disease that has three distinct phases. Phase one, early alcoholism, is called the fun stage. This is when it's fun. Now, the person's driving drunk and going to jail and getting tattooed and lost a couple of teeth, but they're having fun. And when someone's having fun, they're not going to stop. Don't you know what happened to your six uncles and four brothers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not going to happen to me. I'm having a great time. Listen, Ma, when I ever get as bad as you, I'll stop, you know. But right now, I'm having a great time. And it's hard to talk to someone who's delighted, Um And that's the problem with early-stage alcoholism. I mean, for me, I was a sissy, I was awkward, lots of things didn't fit. Give me a couple of social drinks, and I was debonair. And confident, and masculine, and mature, and 15, you know. Um, That works really, really well. So stage one is called the fun stage. And and for those of us, you know, you know a little bit about alcoholism, and you you start to see... um, a child or a grandchild, and you've seen it before. You can worry yourself to death. I have to prevent this. You're not going to prevent it. You get to go to 100,000 Al-Anon meetings and stop worrying because that does no good at all. And you, the way we say, we're saving a chair, you know? Um, one of my nieces loved uh, dating basketball players right out of prison. <laughs> there was a certain je ne sais quoi, you know. And um, we knew that, you know, when it was time, 100,000 Al-Anon meetings will save her life. And you can't get here any sooner because she had such a good time with so many nice young men anyway. None of my business. Stage one alcoholism, according to Dr. Gill, is the fun stage. Stage two, fun plus problems. It's still fun, but you do start to have problems. Um, You lose a job. Um, You go to jail. Uh, You show up drunk uh, at school, either as a student or a teacher. I've done both. Um, You get embarrassed. You uh, spontaneously urinate at an unfortunate public moment. Um, Blackouts. You don't remember. We met before? Um, You know, you wake up and the room's full of goats. You know, you wonder how that happened. Um, You start to have problems. And stage three alcoholism is just called problems. Problems. The good times are gone. And you're still doing it. All kinds of people drink too much. They're not alcoholic. They just drink too much. All kinds of people can drive drunk. They're not alcoholic. They're just drinking too much and driving. With the alcoholic, it's the loss of control. They didn't plan on driving drunk. They didn't even plan on drinking tonight. And they're drunk again. Powerless, unmanageable. A number of people can come to AA not because they're alcoholic, but because they've gotten into trouble. And they learn some stuff here, and they, they, they change their behavior. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You got to find out what's up and you listen and you say, well, that works and that doesn't work and this applies and that doesn't apply. The first step came to, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives are unmanageable. It really asks the question, are you still having any fun? And if you're still having fun, you're not going to hang around. You, you've got you to gotta be bleeding and on fire, you know, to find us interesting. I'm just so glad to be on the raft. You know, the ship went down and I'm still alive. That business of gratitude for still being alive. So I like that image, you know, fun, fun plus problems, problems. And talking to someone, you can't argue with someone about their alcoholism. What we do in Al-Anon is we want to protect everybody we love. And so we don't want them to have bad days or bad experiences or fines. I'll lie for them, I'll cover up for them. I'll take the rap. You know, don't do that. You know, let them have their own experiences and the remarkable thing of actions have consequences. One of the great uh, patron saints of Al-Anon, of course, is Isaac Newton and the laws of physics. And what we get to do in Al-Anon is let the laws of physics take their course. To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. What goes up comes down, you know. And I don't want him to come down so hard. Get out of the way. Just get out of the way. We hope this kid lives to be 22, but we don't know. You know, we don't know. We put a lot of the people we love who are addicts and alcoholics in God's good hands. I don't know what else to do. Dr. Silkworth told Bill Wilson that alcoholism was an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. I like that, too. I really like that. Obsessed and allergic. Um, I, I, uh, I don't mean to embarrass Jackie, but it's kind of fun. Um, I was sitting next to her last night at dinner, and... Uh, she was eating more broccoli than anyone should ever have to eat in the course of a day. And I'm, I'm, I am obsessed with broccoli, but I'm not allergic to it. I just don't like it. Um, but I can be obsessed and obsessed and crave. And it's that business of craving that indicates the allergy in a lot of ways. Powerless. It, it's spectacular. To realize that if you don't take the first one, you're not going to end up taking the 35th one. <laughs> I had to write that down when someone explained that to me. If you don't take the first one, you won't get drunk. Really? There must be a loophole there. I'm going to think about that. Allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. The story I hold also that talks so much about alcoholism, and there are, there are many ways this is talked about, and, and I, I think that's a good thing. You're going to hear medical people talk about this, and therapeutic people talk about this, and political people talk about this. A hundred years ago, I'm an amateur historian, and I have funny obsessions um, about things that happened long ago and no one cares about anymore except me. Um, 
one of the big arguments in the United States was prohibition. How do we deal with alcoholism? And um, the, the movement starting in Minnesota was to outlaw the sale and manufacture of alcohol. And the Supreme Court says it's legal to do that, and suddenly there is this tremendous political movement by the Anti-Saloon League and the Christian Women's Temperance Society, which were as powerful a hundred years ago as the National Rifle Association is today. Absolutely as powerful. Politicians were made and broken by these groups, Anti-Saloon League. Um, and, and suddenly uh, it becomes the law of the land. We're going to outlaw all this stuff. But are you wet or are you dry was a big political issue. Congress will pass the amendment, um, and President Wilson will veto it, and, and they override his veto. And you have to have huge majorities to do that. So this was very popular. We're going to control booze in the United States by making it illegal. And for 20 years, it was a major discussion, obsession, controversy, political thing forever and ever and ever. Yeah, it was just... There's a book on the subject about how prohibition worked in New York City, and it's called Dry Manhattan. It's a hilarious book. And uh, when prohibition started in 1920, the numbers I'm not good at, I'm I'm good at general ideas, but it was like in Manhattan in 1920, there were 3,000 bars on the island of Manhattan. In 1933, when prohibition was repealed, there were 9,000 bars on the island of Manhattan. So it was just open rebellion and craziness and... and, uh, the Canadians produced booze for us. Isn't that nice of them? Um, just on the other side of the border, there were these huge distilleries, also in Jamaica and the Bahamas. Uh, when Jamaica invented the rum trade, it's during Prohibition, and then they would smuggle it into the United States. It would come down through Detroit to Chicago to that nice Mr. Capone, and I think Al Capone himself would drive some to Decatur, Illinois, just so it could be here fresh off the boat, you know. But tremendous crime and illegality and chaos and corruption. It was, anyway, that little back to dry Manhattan, the man put in charge of um, controlling alcohol on the island of Manhattan was a Southern Baptist from North Carolina who didn't like city people. So this isn't going to go very well, you know. Vast amounts of time and energy and money, and we're going to save the country, you know. Well, powerless and unmanageable. Powerless and unmanageable. Um, What I heard to describe this alcoholism thing again was this story that alcoholism is a lot like dancing with a gorilla. You're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing. See, that brings in the powerlessness and the craziness. Uh, I mean, and I'll, I'm, I love the red gorilla. I mean, there are some very fun gorillas out there. And you can have a sensational time for a while. Uh, then they end up killing you, and that's the downside. But up until then, you can have great experiences with the red gorilla. 
Now, when I first heard that story, they didn't say dancing with a gorilla. They said dating a gorilla. And they didn't say dating, just so you know what they're talking about. Um, But the image is clear. The gorilla's in charge. And even though the right gorilla can be a sensational experience, the gorilla kills a lot of people. The casualty rates among alcoholics and addicts are oh so high. Uh, One more time, one more dance, one more round. I'll stop next year. I I watch television. I I have many weaknesses and flaws, and that's one of them. I'm thoroughly entertained by almost anything on television. And there's a, uh, there was a comedy series called The Office, which I like bright, quick. Um, uh, and one of the women in The Office, um, she was an alcoholic. Her name was Meredith. And they were getting together talking about plans for the coming year. In a year, what do you want to see accomplished? And Meredith said, in a year, I hope I'll have six months of sobriety. <laughs> see, it, it doesn't work like that, you know. Uh, I'm more than willing to stop next month or next year, but right now I'm with the gorilla and we're very close. Um, I have a friend in Vegas who who, uh, said he doesn't want to dance with the gorilla, but every so often he wants to pet it just a little bit. Casualty rates. So if someone's clean and sober today, it means the gorilla has let go. It doesn't mean they're smarter than the gorilla or stronger than the gorilla or they've beat the gorilla. The gorilla just let go. If the gorilla has let go, you want to get out of the cage. And you don't want to go back into the cage even when the gorilla starts humming your song, which it does. Oh, no, I'll never go back. It was so awful. I broke everyone's heart. I'll never do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's Saturday night and the moon is full and you're a little restless. And you think you'll have one more waltz. You know, just one more waltz. Chaos. Now, a lot of recovery, you know, they get out of the cage and stay out of the cage. People who love alcoholics and addicts visit the zoo a lot. And they see lions and tigers and bears. I mean, I love zoos. I'm, I, I'm very pro-giraffe myself. Again, I know that's controversial, but I'm very pro-giraffe. Um, they, they look at all the other animals. They walk by the gorilla cage. They look into the gorilla cage. They see the person they love with the gorilla. And we react. We must take action. I must do something. I have to save the day. So we get into the cage. And we start vacuuming and sweeping and moving the furniture and hanging pictures of the Dalai Lama. You know, that'll help everybody. Or maybe some inspiring poetry in Chinese. That'll help everybody. That doesn't help. And then we give them nice nourishing meals and that doesn't help. And so we figure what I'm going to have to do is get between the gorilla and the person I love and separate them. I will fix this. And the gorilla turns on us and yanks our arms and legs off. So we have a program called Al-Anon. And an awful lot of the Al-Anon program comes down to 
stay out of the cage. Let's say that together. Stay out of the cage. But I just want to sweep and vacuum. We know, we know, we know. And it really doesn't help anybody. And stop it. Stop it. We're meeting over by the giraffes. And we will talk about our need to sweep and vacuum and help. It's a deep craziness. I don't get triggered by a lot of people, but there are some people who just trigger me. I'm just allergic to them, and I want to pay their rent and send them to school and get their teeth fixed. Um, The second step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And that's kind of, you know, the theme of the weekend is sanity and getting well and, and, and not being so crazy. Because when I am so obsessed over the behavior of another person, all I can do is think about them, all I can do is try to control them and manage them and weigh them and measure them and monitor them. Um, I lose my life. I lose my own sanity. Before Al-Anon, I, I wanted a life with a lot of drama. And uh, that frequently meant life with a lot of trauma. And in recovery, I no longer find drama and trauma interesting. I want to stay away from it. I, I have to be very careful of my adrenaline high of chasing an ambulance, you know, stop that. Sanity. Uh, I was newly in recovery, uh, barely, barely at the very beginning of the door of recovery. And I was talking to a good therapist, and the therapist um, was helping me deal with emotions, which I had no clue about. He was very helpful. And after talking with him for a while, I said to him, do you think I'm normal? Because I was always pretty sure I wasn't. I mean, I have such odd interests and odd ways of of spending my time. Um, He said, normal is 98.6. I found that very helpful. Not right away, but very helpful. It's a temperature. Also, normal is whatever happens in your neighborhood. My neighborhood is not yours. What's normal for me might not be normal for you. We have the oddest folks in my zip code. And we have uh, a lot of apartment buildings. High population density. In my zip code, we have a lot of retired people and we have a lot of families with brand new children. It is quite interesting. And we have all the colors of the rainbow in terms of skin hue and and accents and rhythms. And isn't that interesting? I like that a lot. Not every neighborhood's like that. But depends on what your neighborhood is, what's normal. So I asked the therapist, what am I trying to ask? And he said, you're trying to ask, are you healthy? 
I've never fantasized about being healthy. I fantasize rare tropical diseases, tumors growing at night. Um, I fantasize being doomed, hopeless, overwhelmed. There's no way out. That's my basic fantasy. It's not getting better. Um, the polar bears are dying. You know, Let's, There's nothing we can do. That's my fantasy. And I said, how do you know you're healthy? And the therapist said, healthy people can do three kinds of things. Number one, healthy people can work. We can be creative. We can accomplish things. We can take charge of stuff. We can start a project, stick with the project, finish a project, clean up afterwards. We can work. We, we participate pretty well. Um, and and that's, that's vital. Uh, a lot of people who are very disabled in different ways aren't able to work. So a big part of health is work. Number two, he said, healthy people can love to be able to work and to be able to love. Boy, that's good. And by love, I have to say this when I visit Southern California. I don't know if I have to say this here. But a lot of love is not about getting laid. Um, You know, I love you, what's your name? Uh, Might not be the conversation uh, that we want to have. Loving is about behavior, not hormones, It's about behavior, and it's about the way I interact with all kinds of people. Strangers, co-workers, family members. And I have found it hardest with family members. If I'm never going to meet you again, I can be very pleasant. (laughs) If we work together, I can be occasionally cranky. If you're a family member of mine, I can abuse you or ignore you. Or give you a little advice that you've never wanted. You know, we've done that a lot in my family. Learning how to behave, um, and here are some Al-Anon words and 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 some things of recovery. Uh, learning how to have boundaries and respect other people's boundaries. If your family is all wild with addiction and alcoholism. You don't know what boundaries are. Everything is everyone else's business all the time. But there are boundaries. I have boundaries. Um, uh, Annie Lamott would say God has given each one of us our own spiritual, psychological, emotional acre. Take care of your own acre. Leave other people's land alone. But I could get very mixed up in your stuff. I'm a, an amateur gardener, too, and um, I have done this. It's, it's one of the signs of my need for 100,000 Al-Anon meetings. My own yard has more than its share of weeds. Uh, this is metaphorically and uh, physically true. I don't want to pull them. But if I walk down the street and notice weeds in your yard... I have been known to go in and just start pulling weeds. I don't even know your name, but I'm pulling your weeds. Just trying to help, you know? But by focusing on your weeds, mine are thriving. And I need to take care of my own acre. Another way of phrasing that is to mind my own business. To keep my big fat mouth shut. I do have an opinion on everything. 
loving. Um, I think grandparents do this better than parents. Parents are pretty overwhelmed. I've never been a parent, but I've watched them. And boy, parents can just be frantic, exhausted, fearful. Uh, I know when I was a kid and I was... um, Officially, I was one of the good kids who drove drunk three times a week, you know, at 16, 17, 18 years old. I was one of the good kids. Um, And uh, I heard my sponsor say once, I'm a drunk driver, that means I was willing to kill you. You know, I keep that in mind. Um, But I know, even though I was one of the good kids, my mom was worried constantly about all of her children. And whenever we walked out the door, we were given warnings and threats and, you know, uh, prohibitions and condemnations and uh, don't do this and don't do that and come back on time. And this, all this fear and anxiety was there, which, of course, I rebelled against, still can. Loving. Loving is not about controlling. In fact, if you really love someone deeply, you probably know there's oh so much you cannot do for them. The experience of loving for many of us is it's powerless. You wish someone well, but that doesn't mean you get to control their behavior. I was listening to Blanche talk about this once, and you know, as part of recovery, we look at we do a fourth step where we look at uh, uh, our behavior and, and, and chaos we've been involved in over the years. And, and Blanche would say she would hear people talk about feeling guilty about so many things, so many things that were done, so many things that should have been done, all that guilt stuff. And Blanche's reflection was this. Some of us prefer to feel guilty because we do not want to feel powerless. The feeling of being powerless over your kids, your grandkids, your spouse is so awful that you'd rather take responsibility for all their bad behavior. I've done that. There was nothing you could do. Well, I should try harder. I should sleep less. I should monitor more. You know? To rest is not to conquer. The vigilance. I'm a mom. I'm vigilant. And you want to say, oh, mom, take the day off. You know? Take the day off. But then my children will fly off the planet. Maybe not. Maybe not. Loving. Uh, Loving is not about manipulating. Uh, In in the, oh, it's the Gray Al-Anon book, and I don't like it, so I can't remember its name. Um, It talks about uh, mothering, martyrdom, manipulating, and managing. Number five, of course, is murder. Don't forget murder. Don't do that either. Um, even when they need killing. You don't want to kill them. It's bad. There was a trial in Texas 
years ago, and, and the defense was the person who was killed needed killing, and, and there was an acquittal, you know, and I, as an Al-Anon person, I understand that perfectly. I get that. Yes, I, they needed killing. Manipulating, managing. Um, step two, uh, l- working, loving, and, and number three, this is the third thing about being a, a healthy person, being able to play. If you can work, if you can love, if you can play, you've got a pretty rich life. And play is, is to enjoy, to take delight in, to recreate, to um, recreation, recreation, recreation. Uh, work takes a lot of energy out of us. Love takes a lot of energy out of us. By recreating, I do that stuff that gives me back energy. I need to replenish. I need some renewal. I need more air. (laughs) I want to find behaviors, activities, and people who help me really enjoy life. And I I, I need to do this on a shoestring budget. To take delight in. To enjoy. I remember talking to a a teacher. Uh, she was all she was a librarian and a teacher, so she had control <laughs> over a hundred thousand books. She knew where everyone was and who was reading every book. I mean, she it was like having lunch with J. Edgar Hoover. You were under surveillance when you talked to her. Um, but she was exhausted, and her husband was an alcoholic, and and she was just such. So we we could, could we talk? And um, I was still very new in recovery myself, but I remember I remember listening to her, and and I said, so tell me what's going on. And she said, Frank, his name was Frank, 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 and she paused after about half an hour of Frank, and took a breath. And I said, what about you? I said, what do you like to do? I know that Frank likes pepperoni and bowling and hunting. What do you like to do? And she just froze. And she said, I just want him to be happy. (laughs) She didn't have a good time being alive. She was a vigilant worrier. And a control freak. And a lot of us are control freaks. Managing, manipulating, mothering. Stop it! (laughs) Throw the burden down. Let go. So what I have to remind myself to do, as someone who loves, is I regularly have to turn people I love and worry about into God's good care. They have a higher power too. Blanche said this. uh, There is one source. The source is God, the higher power. There are many channels, and channels change all the time. And I am not in charge of your channels. I don't know how you're going to make your connection to your higher power. And that's true for kids I taught and for our own children. We're not in charge of who they connect with. 
the higher powers at work, stay out of the way. Working, loving, playing. When I can do those in the course of a week, I'm having a pretty good week. And sometimes I have to take my calendar out and plan uh, work. I'm, I, I stay busy. Uh, I used to think I was a workaholic, but I'm not. Workaholics get a lot more done. Um, I just like staying busy, you know? I just, mindlessly so. Um, and I, I need to watch that. But getting project, starting projects, sticking with the project, finishing the project, cleaning up after getting it in the mail, big deal, big deal. Relationships, the loving stuff. Um, and this is, uh, I would have this uh, under even defects of character. I'm in recovery for a while, and what I notice is I don't have any friends. I have no peers. You are my mentor, or I am your rescuer. But I don't have any peers. I don't have any folks that I would just hang out with. Uh, I guess I was in recovery 8 or 10 or 15 years, and I noticed I don't have any men my own age I'm hanging out with. Older guys, younger guys, but what? Where, where I had to start working on developing friendships. My sponsor, does your sponsor ever nag? I don't know. He just thinks he's repeating important things, but I hear it is nagging. He told me once, hang out with people you can't do very much for. Because if I can do a lot for you, I'm in charge. It's a power thing. It's a control thing. So if you were in a crisis, I was there. When the crisis passed, I lost interest. This is a bad way to treat people. Hang out with people I can't do very much for. Learn to be a friend. And, and again, quoting Blanche, uh, my turn, your turn. My turn, your turn. I have let go of some friendships because I was always the one that made the phone call. Some people I really, really liked. I've known for years, but I noticed that the last 18 times we got together, I set it up. And then with one, one fellow, we, we were in the uh, school together. Uh, the last four times he canceled because stuff came up. And I was irritated by that. But I know life is like that. I mean, things come up. I mean, we're grown-ups. But after the fourth time he canceled, I said to him, I'll wait for your call. And it's been seven years. Wow. You know? Okay. I need reciprocal. I need back and forth. I need, uh, and, and this is in the world of friendship now. I mean, there are all kinds of other things in relationships, but just there has to be some kind of equality. Uh, I have some friends who live up in Seattle, and I, they come down to the Bay Area to visit. I need to go to Seattle to visit too. There has to be an equality. There has to be a back and a forth. And then we have peers, and I'm less isolated If you uh, 
wander through Scripture, and I do. I'm not an expert again. I have kind of a gentleman's knowledge. Um, What's the secret to the Bible? <laughs> there are TV shows that you know you can watch. Um, <laughs> let me save you a lot of time. Um, it's to love God and love your neighbor. It's to love God and love your neighbor. Of course, then the next question is, who is my neighbor? Because we are really interested in finding the loophole there. There must be someone I can hate, just so I can feel better about myself. And there is no loophole. You know, to love God and love your neighbor. And there are so many different ways we can do that. Sometimes we love people by leaving them alone. Sometimes we love people by visiting them when they're sick. Sometimes we... Uh, uh, love our neighbor by cooperating on a project. Sometimes we love our neighbor by baking a cake. Sometimes we uh, uh, love our neighbor just by listening to him talk. There's all kinds of different ways people love. And again, the older we are, the more we notice the variety of ways that people can love each other. And I, I think that's important. Let me do uh, 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 two more minutes and then let's take a break. I heard this at a meeting. Um, someone was talking about resentments and anger and fear, which we'll talk about again later on this morning. Uh, this person said this, and I don't know if this is 100% true, but I, I, I heard this. Resentment is about not getting my way in the past. Anger is about not getting my own way in the present. And fear is about not getting my own way in the future. Resentment, not getting my own way in the past. Anger, not getting my own way in the present and fear not getting my own way in the future. Why don't we take a 15-minute break? Is that a good idea? Stretch and pee and smoke. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll come back. <laughs>